You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome in to Loho Daily. I'm Loho, Lawrence Holmes. That's me. I ordinarily do a radio show on 670 The Score in Chicago. I appreciate you listening to my podcast today. and We do fun stuff daily. So it gives me an opportunity to kind of talk to interesting people or about subjects that I might not do on my radio show. I'm glad that you're here with me. The first episode was about Negro League Baseball, and I loved having Bob Kendrick on the episode. He's a, a real character. And you'll hear from him in this episode. I'll, uh, I'll explain a little bit later on. I have always been fascinated by Ichiro Suzuki. He has been one of my favorite players. I don't ordinarily collect things as far as like bobbleheads go since I've worked as a reporter or as a talk show host over the last 20 years. Ichiro is one of the guys that I actually have a bobblehead of. It sits on my bookshelf in my office because I find him to be a fascinating case study, a fascinating player, and I wanted to explore the on the field and off the field significance of Ichiro. And that's what today's podcast is about. And I'll get to my guests that are going to be on it momentarily. But I wanted to give you some numbers to, to kind of explain why this guy is one of the greatest players that's ever played the game of baseball. And I, I found this from Matt Snyder, who writes for CBS Sports, breaking down the numbers. I mean, I guess I could have done the podcast and acted like I completely came up with all of these numbers and just had them off the top of my head, but I did not do that. Ichiro is the only player ever in the history of the game, ever, to have 10 straight seasons with 200-plus hits. 10 straight. Now, Pete Rose had 10 seasons where he had over 200 hits, obviously. You're not the hit king without that. But to have 10 straight... Ichiro's the only player in the game that had that. Let me give you some more numbers. If you look on the career hit list, Ichiro leaves his major league career after starting it at age 27, 22nd in hits behind A-Rod and Dave Winfield and ahead of Adrian Beltre, Craig Biggio, and Ricky Henderson. It's kind of crazy. Then you look at career stolen bases. Ichiro's 35th, again, after starting his career at 27, behind Barry Bonds and Jose Reyes. Remember when Barry Bonds was a 400-400 guy? He ended with 514 stolen bases. Ichiro had 509. That puts him ahead of players like Louis Aparicio and Paul Molitor for career stolen bases. Players with three with at least 3,000 hits and 500 stolen bases, Ricky Henderson, Paul Molitor, Lou Brock, Ty Cobb, Honus Wagner, Eddie Collins, and Ichiro. Most career singles. Ichiro's sixth on the list with 2,514. That puts him behind Rose, Cobb, Collins, Anson, and Derek Jeter. How about intentional walks? Well, obviously, you know, Barry Bonds is going to be at the top of that list. Ichiro had 181, which makes him 26th. Hits in a major league season. Ichiro with the most hits, 262. 
That puts him ahead of George Sisler, who did it back in 1920 with 257. Ichiro was also 10th on the list with his 2001 season and 18th on the list with his 2007 season. How about most seasons with 220 hits or more? Ichiro had five of them. So he had the most. Rogers Hornsby, Jesse Burkett, Stan Musial, Joe Medwick, Chuck Klein, Bill Terry, Lloyd Wayner, George Sisler, and Ty Cobb. Only 61 players in the history have of the game have ever even had 220 hit seasons. Ichiro did it five times. And then if you go up to 230, and this is Matt Snyder from CBS Sports, his piece, Ichiro has three seasons where he did that. And only 31 players in the history of the game were able to do that. All of it is pretty crazy. There are only two guys that have won Rookie of the Year and MVP, Ichiro and Freddie Lynn. Outfield gold gloves. Roberto Clemente had 12. Willie Mays had 12. No surprise there. King Griffey Jr., Al Kaline, and Ichiro had 10. This guy was an absolute phenomenon. He made watching the game so fun. And I'm happy that I had the opportunity to kind of just talk about him. So on today's podcast, you are going to hear from Michael Kim. Michael Kim has a long story career in broadcasting, covering baseball. Spent a long time at ESPN. He now works for the Stadium Network. He's my friend. We actually did a show together over there when Stadium was called 120. And we love talking baseball. We're both big baseball fans. But I also wanted to get his perspective as an Asian-American member of the media on the cultural impact of Ichiro. So we're going to do that. Dane Perry writes for CBSSports.com. I tapped into him because he wrote a couple of good pieces on Ichiro on the field, and I wanted to to give him an opportunity to talk about Ichiro the player more so than the cultural phenomenon. And he gives some really good answers and answers some, uh, does a little myth-busting too on Ichiro. And then there's a piece of the interview that I did with Bob Kendrick from the Negro League Museum that I think that you will find interesting. So I wanted to add that into the conversation as well. So we spend a lot of time, in fact, it's the whole episode, regaling in the splendor that is Ichiro Suzuki. Here's me and Michael Kim. He's one of my favorites. I just, I've always loved Ichiro. And I, I don't know how it would feel if I were Japanese or mm-hmm. if I were Asian, but mm-hmm. just as someone who loves baseball and you look at his numbers, the guy's amazing. Oh, yeah. And, th- and to think that he spent a career in Japan before he even came to the United States. So that's, that's even more impressive. That he's, tw- he's 27 when he gets to the major leagues right. and still ends up coming in and winning a, a rookie of the year, an MVP. just 3,000 hits. Right. Like, like, I was looking at some of the numbers. There's Some of the numbers on each row are so stupid that that they have to be talked about. And, all right, for example, most seasons with 230-plus hits, he's got three of them, and then there's two guys, three guys that have two, and only 31 other players have done it once. Yeah. Like, that's insane to me. The most seasons with 220 hits. He's got five of them. And then you start talking about guys like Roger Horn, Rogers well, Hornsby and Stan George Musial. Sisler yes. probably is who, hit, who had the most hits, right, in a single season before yeah. Ichiro. And then Ichiro, you know, it's a real cool thing that he did, I guess, as he visited the grave site after he broke the record. Um, you know, he's, he's a student of the game. He really understands. And it's a, it's, it's a fascinating story. And I wish the one thing that we all missed out on was that he didn't speak English to the – he, you know, and and you know, mainstream media just doesn't have the time to be able to sit down and do all these long form interviews with him. And he actually speaks, and I can get into this. He speaks really good English, apparently, from what I'm told. But he's self conscious that he he's afraid of using the wrong word, and he's very self conscious in that uh, in that regard. I've been told 
that the all-star speech. Did I tell American, you that? I think I may have told you, you that. You may have told me yeah. this story. So, so, so go ahead. Share. Yeah. Okay. So apparently one of the highlights for veterans of the all-star game during the time when each row first came up, a lot of people still didn't know who he was and and what to make of him because he was always quiet and he had his own pregame routine, right? So there were a lot of things about him that people just kind of said, okay, well, he does his own thing. We're going to leave him alone. And um, they just kind of let him be. But especially in the All-Star games, it became a thing where veterans just loved just coming back to the All-Star game just to experience his pep talk. He would get so fired up with these American League clubhouse meetings right before the game, and the newcomers, the rookies, if you will, to the All-Star game, would be, would be completely shocked because, number one, they didn't know that he could speak English. Number two, he's dropping F-bombs and MFers and, <laughs> and just getting everybody riled up. And so some of the veterans are just laughing hysterically because they can't believe. It's not so much what he's saying now. It's about the reaction that they're seeing from these newcomers because they knew that they had that same reaction because he just apparently like bolted out of his locker like a horse coming out of the, you know, out of the gates at the Kentucky Derby. And he'd jump out into the middle of the room and just start saying everything and trying to get everybody fired up because he saw the all-star game as a competitive game as a chance to show off his skills and he wanted everyone to get fired up the way he was fired up and not everybody of course felt that way going into the game initially and so it became a thing where over several years and I don't know how long it went on but it became a thing where he gave the pep talk and got everybody pumped up before they went out onto the field. See, I, I love that. I, I love hearing stories like that and I even when was it last year with Otani where Ichiro is kind of warming up and Otani runs over <laughs> yes. to him and then Ichiro starts running the other way. Right, right. Like, how great is that? Right. Well, you got to remember, too, he is a god in Japan. And every player who has come from Japan and made its way to the major leagues, I mean, they just revere him. He's Michael Jordan or anybody else that you put up on a pedestal like we do here in the United States. He is that guy there. And you have to remember, he has been in the spotlight there for – Almost 30 years now because the – and I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, Lawrence. It's like – and coincidentally, right now we're talking about March Madness and how everybody around the country is really into a college basketball tournament. People who typically aren't interested in November, December, and January are really focused because of office pulls and things like this where they're really into college basketball. The same thing happens in Japan in the summers – Koshien is the high school tournament that is nationally covered, television coverage, national media. The people who emerge as stars from this tournament are guys that we know because that's where Hideo Nomo became a huge star and Daisuke Matsuzaka and Hideki Matsui and Ichiro. So we now know them because they come over here to the United States, but they become huge stars there. And it's, it was interesting because he had already played, what, like nine seasons in Japan before he even came to the United States. He, one, wanted to come here to test his skills against the very best in the world, but two, it allowed him to escape some of the spotlight and all the paparazzi from Japan. I mean, he was a megastar in Japan already. He had to come here to kind of be a normal guy. And we hear that from uh, soccer players from Europe, right? They love coming to the United States because they can go to stores and do things that normal people do without being bothered. I, I had that conversation with uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger, mm. who plays for the sure. Chicago Fire. He told me that... Um, that he loves it in America because for the most part he can walk down Michigan Avenue and there's no problem that right. he has no, no one bothers him. I mean, his, he and his wife are international superstars and they can just kind of fade into the background, even though she's six feet tall. I don't know how, how you, you fade into the background with that, but it, it's the same type of thing where he told me that in Germany, if, if he cannot walk around, he cannot walk around in Berlin because if he walks around in Berlin, there's going to be a horde sure. of people that are surrounding him and following him. This is an interesting story that I thought of as I was watching the media covering his last games there in Japan because, you know, he was covered wherever he went, whether it was Seattle or Miami, the Yankees, back to Seattle. There were, what, 30, 40 reporters and, and camera crew and 
all the staff that basically covered Ichiro around the country every day of every season, right? I mean, he had a horde following him. Think about this. He was over here for 18 years, right? And so there are people who probably had families and have kids now ready for college, right? In the time that they came over here to cover Ichiro, and now that era is over. I mean, there's a lot that goes on the, the tentacles of this Ichiro industry, if you will. I never even thought about that. And, yeah. and I, I mean, I'm used to it by seeing in Chicago the Japanese media uh, be here for you, Darvish, mm-hmm. now. And right. them following what's going on with him. But I, you're right. Like, Ichiro is kind of a, a cottage industry yes. if you've spent all this time developing that relationship and covering him. Right. And, you know, here's the crazy thing that I kept going back to over the last few days here as we were approaching the final games for Ichiro. I mean, we're talking about in our lifetime, Lawrence. In fact, just 18 years ago, if you remember, there were some people who I respect, who are intelligent people, baseball people who understand the game and I think life in general, they questioned whether an Asian could play baseball every day at the major league level, that the 162-game schedule would be too much for an Asian man. Okay, they could pitch every five days, or maybe they can come out of the bullpen and pitch one inning or to a batter every couple days, but to do it every day, there were legitimate questions by legitimate people about whether this could be done, which is just mind-boggling to me that we're talking about from 2001. In this century, we're not talking about like 1801, 2001, right? And in some ways, I think, and, and, and there's so many parts of this. Um, now, I'm not comparing him to Jackie Robinson in the sense of the things that he had to overcome. Don't get me wrong on that. But there are some similarities. I will say this. I don't think, and I don't know, you can correct me, I don't think there was any question about whether Jackie Robinson could play the game and be able to hang athletically with the white players when he broke the color barrier, right? No. There were those questions for Ichiro in 2001. Could he hang with major league players, Caucasian, African-American, you know, Latinos? Right? There were those questions. And he and Hideki Matsui came over at the same time. And, of course, we uh, found out very quickly, you know, with his Rookie of the Year MVP season that he could and we could or whoever you want to say Asian Americans can or Asians could. Uh, but it's stunning to think that they had those questions, right? And, you know, I, I'm just I'm just to this day still puzzled how people even thought that. You were entrenched in the industry back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How offensive was that to you? Extremely, because one of the guys who was outspoken the most about this was a guy who I really like. I consider a friend, Rob Dibble, former Reds closer, who was then at the time co-hosting a radio show on ESPN Radio with Dan Patrick. And he was convinced that an Asian could not play Every day in the major leagues. What was his reasoning behind that? I, pure I, ignorance. I think it was I, ignorance. It's I pure ignorance. I do remember. I yeah. remember this conversation. Because he ended up running through Times Square in his underwear. Now, he claimed he would do it naked, but ESPN wouldn't let him do it. <laughs> they should have made him do it because he was an idiot for saying it. And I love Rob, but that was just pure lunacy for him to say something like that and just was completely ignorant. The problem was, and, and here's the important thing, and this also kind of ties back to Jackie Robinson, is that it was important that he do well, like Jackie did. Because being that first guy, and I don't even know if Ichiro actually felt that pressure because he's not from this country, he comes over, he'd already had success, he'd already been a professional baseball player in his eyes, and he was over there. He comes over here, and he just wants to be one of the best among the players that he was playing with. He, I don't know how much he thought about the historical significance of what he was doing, right? Jackie Robinson, if he gets into fights, if he goes against what Branch Rickey had told him about trying to be the role model for other players behind him, if he fails, then we might have a, a, a who knows how long of a gap before the next black player comes into the major leagues, right? But because he performed well on and off the field, did everything he had to do and was that role model and turned the other cheek, then... You know, then you had the Larry Robies and Frank Robinsons, Hank Aaron's, Willie Mays, Satchel Pages, on and on and on, right? But there, but at no time was there ever, ever any question, I don't believe, whether or not he could play the game. It was just a matter of would they let him play the game. So Ichiro had that advantage where 
he was going to be allowed, but then it, he had all of these things that he had to prove. To other people. That, that he had to prove that he could rise to the level of of playing. But that's after the idea of, can he just handle the schedule? Right. Is he just going to be able right. to play a full major league schedule? Think about how ridiculous that thought is. Especially when you consider how in shape that guy has been throughout his entire career exactly. and how he is held up by other players is, you know, I used to watch players will say, I used to watch Ichiro do his stretch routine, like in between pitches because he always kind of wanted to be a little bendy and flexible and that rubbed off on other players. And they mm-hmm. added that to their own routines. Like mm-hmm. The guy was a trailblazer in a lot of different ways. Exactly. And so, Yeah, it was important that he do well because, and we've had this discussion on your House of L podcast about Jeremy Lin and Lin's sanity. One of the things that really resonated about that is because he did well on the highest level at the biggest, uh, on the biggest stage, if you will, at Madison Square Garden playing in New York under the bright lights of Broadway. For whatever you think or don't think that's important, it is, I think, in a lot of eyes, in a lot of people's eyes, and, and how it forms. Um, some thoughts and, and the perspective that it provides for people. And I think with each row doing that in the major leagues, it completely changed everything. And look, you're going to see more and more. It's still, you know, probably not as many. Keep in mind, Japan's still a small country. It's, it's like the Dominican Republic, but there, was, there, there have been programs developed to get those players to the United States. Whereas in Japan, keep in mind, there's a lot of pressure for those players to stay there and keep the Japan leagues uh, viable. So it's much tougher. And that's why there's those those high posting uh, costs for major league teams. You know, they have to put forth, what, tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. just to even negotiate. And there's no guarantee that that player will come over. But more times than not, they do. That's where, remember, the Shohei Otani situation came into play and why he's taking much less money because he didn't want to go through that whole process. And I think... I think he, what he did still ruffled some feathered, uh, still has some people ruffled over the situation that he left before he actually played a full, a full career, if you will, or a, a minimum career with the Japanese teams. What do you think Ichiro's lasting impact on Asian culture in American society is? Wow. Um, I think in – I mean, it's, it's hard to – it's I know that's a big diaspora. That, well, right, right, <laughs> it is. But at the same time, it's still not over. We still don't know, right? It's still ongoing, and maybe this answer is better to be uh, spoken, say, 20 in years 15, from now. 20 years, right, because then we'll see the effects of a generation maybe coming through and seeing how uh, it truly impacted, he truly impacted what you're asking about. I think um, right now it's just – the victory of going and and coming here and really just overcoming whatever thoughts that people had, breaking down those barriers, the stereotypes, whatever thoughts. I mean, there's not a scout today that thinks, oh, I wonder if he has the ability to play a 162-game schedule, right? That's not even a thought. I mean, it's it's probably uh, not that different. You know, I, I apologize if I'm using too many analogies here, but it might be like the black quarterback, Right. For the longest time, we had that mindset, or at least NFL personnel did. Can't that, win a Super Bowl. Yeah. Can't, can't do can't this, can't do team. that. Whatever. Whatever the stupid uh, thoughts were in those heads and, and whatever. And they used it. They would use that just for who knows what reasons, actually. Because it, no, it made no financial sense. It made no sense to win games, right? Bottom, if they say it's about winning, well, then why are you thinking that way? Why are you allowing that to, to even creep into your mind? But, you know, that's the one thing, I guess, Ichiro, I, I, I wish he would have been able to get over that hump and be able to lead a team to a championship, and he nearly did in his first year. I mean, he basically did everything he could, right? And they won 116 games. The Mariners just couldn't seal the deal in the end. It seems like the Mariners really embraced the idea of being able to reach out to the Asian television markets too, like they, oh, they yeah. w- why do you think that that was so important to them? Well, they had already had that relationship going. Remember the the ownership there with the Nintendo, Nintendo company. That's right. Yeah. So they they already had that relationship. I mean, the Mariners are basically Japan's team, 
So while um, while that was already started, and that's and I think that's what's uh, probably the the appeal for so many Japanese players coming over to the U.S. They always think of Seattle first. Seattle, probably the Yankees, because the Yankees are the Yankees, and and they're they're so well. Their brand is so strong. Exactly. I mean, you can go in. I can't tell you how many times I've been in Seoul and Tokyo and. Shanghai and Beijing, and you're walking around, and you just see Yankees hats. And I don't even know if they're baseball fans, right? But they wear Yankees hats. So uh, I, it's it's just amazing how he, um, you know, it's just it, there were other people before him, obviously, but the the hurdle that he helped cross, or or he the wall that he helped break, or the window or ceiling that he helped shatter was just the everyday player, he and Hideki Matsui, but he especially because he lasted longer than Matsui did and was able to be a record-breaking athlete, a record-setting, record-breaking athlete. Um, And that's not to take anything away from Matsui, but he was older by the time he came, and he was also surrounded by a better team playing for the Yankees. And, you know, you hear now with Derek Jeter, he still said that Ichiro was one of his favorite athletes Favorite teammates, I'm sorry. One of his favorite teammates that he ever had across the board. And you saw, like, Ken Griffey Jr. was went to Tokyo and was there for that final game. I mean, the, he talked about the story of how Ichiro... Did you see this? Where no. He, he, he talked about how he had dinner with Ichiro, invited him over to his place to have dinner. So they're eating dinner, and all of a sudden he leaves. And he went and worked out for 35 minutes, and then they came back and had dessert. And he's like, where were you? He goes, oh, I got into workout. He goes, What? <laughs> So, you know, it's stuff like that. I mean, he, teammates just love him. And and you saw D. Gordon, who played with him with Miami as well as in Seattle. Apparently, you know, they have a really tight relationship. And you saw how even Yusei Kikuchi, the starting pitcher, making his major league debut in Ichiro's last game, it was almost like the torch being passed to him. And he broke down crying because uh, I think the emotions of, obviously, the moment of seeing his idol playing his last game, getting that standing ovation there at the Tokyo Dome, and, and just his, I think just the little boy in him came out in that moment. Do you think that there's something to the idea of the mythology of Ichiro because most people don't know that he speaks English very well, that there's something to the... Well, he wants you to believe that. Th- that's what because I'm saying. Because the other thing, too, is he apparently speaks... Some decent Spanish, of course, and, it's, he and does. knows a lot of the curse words and the little slang sayings that he shocks guys. Like he'll, you know, get to first base, and Jose Abreu will be standing there, and he'll say something in Spanish, and like, "What? Who are you? How did you know that?" And he'll have them laughing, and next thing you know, he takes off for second base. You know, stuff like that. Uh, it's a really, he's a fascinating guy that he doesn't let outsiders come into his circle, right? And so we'll. Probably never know the true Ichiro, certainly not from him. This would be a fascinating documentary down the road if he were either to open up or other people that could get enough stories from all the people who got at least close enough where they got some stories, where they learned some stories and got to know him a little bit on the personal level. Yeah, I know that that there was clearly some disconnect between he and his father, but he never, ever, ever talks about it. But I think at the same time, he appreciates that his father, who had the dream for him to be the greatest baseball player ever, helped him get to be where he is and to be who he is, right? Yeah, I don't know exactly what went on there. I don't know if it's a, you know, what if there was an abusive type of relationship or it was just the pressure that uh, he just didn't like to have on him. I don't know. We'll never know, maybe. Because he probably never will speak badly about his father. I'm, I'm guessing that he, that will never come out of his mouth. And probably the people closest to him will probably protect that as well, those who do know, right? I mean, I, I would be very shocked to find out the true story. But regardless, I don't think it's, uh, you know, questioned as far as what, you know, where he is now is because of his father as, a, you know, when he saw him as a young kid, had him going out there and, being able to do all the things that he does now, you know, throwing those long throws and long tosses from... He gave us one more before he said goodbye, Oh, my gosh. How about that? Where he's basically on the warning track and just throwing the ball to third base on a line. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, and didn't have to move the glove. 
Right. Right. I mean, and that's – I remember – that's probably the thing that I remember the most. I mean, there were hits that he had and runs, steals and things like that. But that throw – when he threw out Terrence Long at third base against the A's, coincidentally, that BB and Long was like, what What happened? The ball was just getting to him, and I was already at shortstop, you know, and he turned around and saw that the ball was just getting to the right fielder. So he, you know, slows down a little bit, standing up, and boom, the cannon shot arrives. Oh, here's the other great story about Ichiro. Lou Pinella, right, his manager, claims, and there are others I've heard from uh, his Seattle past, the, the first stint with the M's. They, they swear that he could have won a home run derby at the All-Star game, but he wouldn't let himself go. He wouldn't put himself out there because he knew that people would expect him to win, and if he didn't win, then he would be, I guess, shamed or embarrassed. I don't know. He was such a proud guy. Uh, he is such a proud guy that I don't think he would allow himself to fail on a public stage like that. But in batting practice, guys will tell you that at will could hit home runs and like upper deck shots. And they were just stunned at how well he could just place balls if they told him, hit that net there in left center, boom, on a line. He'd hit it. Hit it to the right fielder, boom, on a line. Hit it to the right fielder. I mean, he just had that bat control. But he could also just take it out. And they said it was the most amazing thing for a guy who was 5'9", 175 pounds. I used to love that because it was like a phenomenon when he would come to town like, hey, Ichiro's about to do batting practice. Like, you need to go. Like, that was one of those kind of known secrets among reporters in baseball that if Ichiro comes to town and he's having batting practice, you need to watch it because (laughs) he's going to put on some sort of exhibition where you're going to walk away and go, what? Like, how is that even possible? Right. It's just, you know, it's just a, a, a master. Right? It's just a master craftsman doing his thing. And when you do it day in, day out, from the time that he was a little kid, getting back to what his father did, it was just second nature. Right? And I think that's where he, you know, it was kind of, it was in some ways it was unfortunate to see him go over in his yeah. last at-bats um, because he clearly didn't have the bat speed. I, I was reading some stuff. That this spring they could tell for the it was like almost the first time they could tell he didn't have it anymore. It it took him till he was forty five, right after like a twenty eight year professional baseball career. Think about that too, Lawrence. Twenty eight year professional baseball career where guys are you know twenty. We think of twenty eight as getting into your prime. Well, he was a twenty eight year professional baseball player. That played to his mid forties. That's amazing. I felt like MLB got this right. Yeah, I think that, you know, in in the M's and the A's, I thought, you know, really classy. And and I think each row knew in the back of his mind, I can't go on more than this. I think he did it because it was, here's his chance to bring everything full circle, end his career in his homeland, wasn't going to have this opportunity again. A lot of people thought, remember in 2012 when the M's went back there, I think it was, that they thought that that was going to be it for him. But then he continued his career and uh, got that chance one more time. So, yeah, it was the fitting end, at least in terms of the location. What was it like for you to see his whole major league career and to see, like you said, it come full circle and it end with him in Japan in front of the Japanese fans and on on an, have the games be literally and figuratively on an island Mm -hmm. where all of Major League Baseball could kind of uh, give him his props. No, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was just the perfect ending. Maybe a more perfect ending would have been, certainly if he got a hit, but I was almost thinking he should just lay down a bunt and go, right? That would be like classic Ichiro, outside of maybe banging one over the boards. But I, I thought if he got like a hit to the left side, kind of a Tony Gwynn-esque type hit, the the classic Ichiro type hit, that would have been perfect. Uh, but it was it was still uh, as close to perfect, I think, uh, as it was. And um, look, it, it's pretty amazing. Just uh, like I said, it's hard to put into words 
from my perspective, both as an Asian American as well as a sports fan and as a sports journalist, to see during within my career, this guy came into the major leagues, overcame. Um, I don't even know if he felt like he overcame barriers as much as the ones that we knew existed there for him and and overcoming some of the stereotypes and and some of the uh, um, ignorant mindsets of people to change that where, yeah, now it's not even a thought. That's that's not easy to do, no matter what industry it is, no matter what race it is, right? I mean, to overcome what he did for other people and, you know, like I said, to be that first guy, there's so much pressure uh, an expectation on that first guy to get it right, and if he because if he doesn't see, I told you that guy couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Messes it up for everyone who's behind. Exactly, him. exactly. And uh, he didn't do it. So it was uh, really after that first year, everything else was gravy because he came in right away and proved with his rookie of the year MVP season and leading the Mariners to 116 wins that year. He could do it. I had the chance to also talk with Dane Perry. Dane is a national baseball writer for CBSSports.com. And we decided that we were going to talk about each row from the perspective of his actual on-the-field impact on the game. This is me and Dane. So so I sat down with Michael Kim, and we talked about the cultural significance of each row. I wanted to talk with you about the baseball significance of each row. And, yeah, absolutely. And I, I saw yeah. your piece. So, so why? Let's start here. Why was he able to make the transition from the Japanese league to Major League Baseball look so effortless? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I would say one factor is he hit it at the right age. I mean, you know, the early two thousands aging curve. It's kind of changed a bit now because of advances in training and that sort of thing. But back then. The sweet spot was around age 27, 28, and he debuted at age 27 in MLB, and that was significant, I think, because he was at just the right age. But beyond that, he just had incredible bat-to-ball skills. I mean, his swing looks a little unorthodox. You know, we're used to, you know, really power cuts and that sort of thing, and his almost looked a little awkward. But if you look at him when he got in hitting position, it's a pretty traditional swing. The setup is unconventional and unique to him. But once he gets bat to ball, he's in a pretty conventional hitting type situation. I think perhaps we, you know, coming into his career, maybe we overrated, you know, how busy his swing was and how many moving parts there were uh, and didn't really notice that he got in good traditional hitting position when it was time to put the bat on the ball. So I think perhaps the mechanics caused him to be subject to maybe some undue skepticism. And there's the fact that he was age 27, which was the sweet spot back in those days. And he was just so good at being able to kind of put the ball wherever he wanted. I think that's one of my favorite things about him as a player. Yeah, I mean, his, his uh, you know, we don't think of him as a guy who drew walks, but he had plate discipline in that, you know, he made contact at such a high percentage. He knew what he could handle. He just had a wider range of pitches that he could handle than, uh, than most hitters in those days. So it looks like he's swinging wildly, but yet he had – just this, you know, whether innate or trained over the years, he just had this knowledge of the kind of pitch he could handle. And he had a big strike zone. They weren't all strikes. They were strikes to him, though. And he just had that exceptional ability to put the ball in play, almost evocative of Black Guerrero, uh, on pitches that, you know, other hitters would have laid off of or swung and miss at. Where do you come down on the, the mythology of Ichiro in batting practice do you believe what Lou Pinella and other people said where if Ichiro entered a home run derby that he could win it no (laughs) I don't believe that uh I think if he would have had that type of ability it would have been coached out of him uh they would have well coached it up I should say uh you know it was evolving into a power game when he first came into MLB and if he had that kind of potential he would have been pushed to tap into it, I think. Now, I, you know, I don't doubt if he, you know, altered his swing more to, you know, step into the pitch and have the hands going back as the foot goes forward and that kind of thing, that he could have tapped into more power. And, you know, and, every, and he could knock the ball, ball out of the park on occasion. I mean, he, uh, you know, he hit 15 home runs one year, if I, if I recall correctly. So he had some power. But, no, I, I think this is sort of myth-making. 
that he could have, you know, just, uh, no, I have to say, I did not witness each row in batting practice that I can remember. So maybe he did put on a show like that, but you know, there's a big difference between hitting 60 mile an hour batting practice fastballs and, and facing a guy who has four different pitches and that sort of thing. So I don't really buy into that. I think it's kind of a fun myth, but I do think it's a myth. Why do you think American fans gravitated towards him? I, you know, I think it was the novelty of it. They had not seen, he was kind of a throwback hitter. I mean, he hit for high average, did not strike out, was uh, exceptionally active on the bases. And this was, you know, we saw a big offensive spike in the year 2000. That's kind of when the power era started. What we look back on now is perhaps being a steroids era, that sort of thing. There's a lot more going on than that, but that's kind of how we think of it. And he was, uh, you know, a bit of a throwback. I think they gravitated to him in that regard. And there was also an exotic factor to it because no Japanese hitter had ever successfully transitioned to the major leagues. And he uh, seemed to defy a lot of odds in that way. And, uh, and of course, you know, if he had had a substantial learning curve and struggled for the first four or five years of his career, we'd think of him very differently. But as you noted earlier, he hit uh, immediately. And he, uh, you know, it wasn't long into his career where we saw that, uh, I think that, you know, that throw to third base where we saw, you know, his skills in the field put on display as well. So he kind of landed like a thunderbolt, and that really helped uh, his image and his acceptance by U.S. fans. It's kind of amazing, like, to see a guy that was 45 basically throw a, a ball on the line from the track to, to third base. And, and it wasn't even like – it looked like he wasn't even expending a lot of energy to do it. Like, that, that's kind of the, the fun thing about this is we talk, like, like about the mythology – of each row that, that though there are a bunch of those moments throughout his career. And you just go, wow, this guy seems like he's from another planet. Yeah. And I think there's a, uh, there's a relatability to just his body type. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was a huge Ozzie Smith fan because he was not a big guy and just did these amazing things. And each row, you know, if you didn't know who he was and ran into him, you would not guess that he was, uh, uh, an elite professional athlete at the height of his skills. And, uh, yeah, he was. I mean, he's a slight guy. And uh, to see him do these kind of things, to see him, you know, turn around 95-mile-hour fastballs and, you know, throw balls in the warning track to third base, uh, you know, without a hop, uh, and run the bases like he did, it was, uh, it was very striking, I think, endearing. When I was checking out what you wrote about the, this kind of farewell, I was curious to know what you thought about the way MLB packaged it. Were you happy with the way that they approached giving him a farewell? I thought so. I mean, you know, I, I just thought it was a nice moment for him to go back there to his native land and, and, uh, you know, be added to the roster just for that. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, I, I don't think it's going to wind up compromising anything in the end. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if the Mariners wind up, you know, missing out on the postseason by a game. Well, they won both of those games that each row played in. So that didn't really affect anything in terms of, you know, putting a guy out there who maybe didn't belong on a skill level, that sort of thing. So, no, I, I thought it was uh, – it created a really nice moment. I think there was – you know, there was a lot of back and forth about why are they starting the season at Japan, games, you know, one in the States at four in the morning or whatever. Well, this was why, you know, and I think that it sort of justified that decision to have yet another Japan series to start the season and – and uh, it just created a really nice and memorable moment and something I think built some enthusiasm leading toward actual opening day. What did you think of the reaction of, of Kikuchi uh, at, at the game and him being in tears as, as Ichiro walks off the field? Yeah, I mean, it shows you what he meant to Japan and to you know, this generation of Japanese ballplayers who grew up watching Ichiro and grew up idolizing him, grew up seeing him, you know, Hideo Nomo sort of embodied the dream for pitchers, and Ichiro, you know, embodied it for everyone else over in Japan. And, uh, you know, you saw D. Gordon get choked up as well, and that was another nice touch. And, you know, it just shows what he meant, shows what a beloved teammate he's been over the years and just what a living legend he is. Yeah, you kind of beat me to it because you wrote about this too where the, the interaction between him and King Griffey Jr. and Jr. being a part of this thing too. What do you think that says about the type of teammate – and guy that Ichiro is? You know, I, I think he was just willing to uh, to meet anyone on a teammate level and, and just be that guy and uh, be a solid guy in the clubhouse and on the field and be at once incredibly business, business-like and dedicated to his craft and also fun-loving and keeping it light and treating it like the game he should be. I saw an old video going around the other day 
where he's, uh, you know, and, and it's not really a locker room. I'm not sure the setting, but Pedro Martinez walks in and Ichiro makes a joke in Spanish to him. So it's just, you know, he just, he had this ability to relate to all types of players and, and he was willing to meet anyone on their level. And uh, it just made him a very beloved and charming and endearing guy. And he'll remain that forever. Do you have a favorite moment? Uh, or, or a favorite I, stat on Ichiro? No, I won't say a stat because all of them are, I, I, you know, I love his contact rates. I love the fact that he just never struck out, which is just such a rare thing these days. I mean, he struck out, I think 40 times one year, uh, something like that. But, you know, I, I, I'll always think of the quote, uh, where his translator related quote about, he was asked if he was excited about going to Cleveland. And he said something like, if I'm ever excited about Cleveland, I'll punch myself in the face because I'd be lying. <laughs> and it was just sort of, it was that sort of, and you can't even get mad at the guy, mad at the guy if you're from Cleveland because it's just so funny and it's just so Ichiro that that you know fun-loving sense of him. So now I think about some of his wonderful quotes over the years, and that one particularly stands out. When it comes to the relationship that that the Mariners have with Japan, or with the Mariners' ownership and Nintendo had with Japan, how how perfect was it that that was kind of the introduction? Like, does the Ichiro career? go the same if he's a Cincinnati Red, for example? Does he even want to come here if he's going to end up being a Red? Yeah, I think, I think the Mariners had a lot to do with that. I mean, the Nintendo ownership back in the day, and of course, you know, this, the uh, tremendous and vibrant Japanese-American population in Seattle, and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's a major hub for Japanese travel into the U.S., and uh, I think that had a lot to do with it. I mean, he definitely landed in the Ryan organization an organization poised to support him in the, what had to be a difficult transition, despite how easy he made it look. Uh, I think that definitely uh, had an effect and was beneficial to him, and that's probably an under underthought of part of the story. Now, if you listen to episode one of The Daily, you heard me talking with Bob Kendrick, who runs the National Negro League Museum in Kansas City. You should go visit it. If you ever go see the White Sox or the Cubs play in KC, you should just make that part of your trip. He talked about Ichiro. I was a little bit surprised by it, but I'm glad that he did, and I wanted to share it as part of the story. The Negro Leagues helped make the game the global game that it is today. It is a global sport, and at the heart of it were the Negro Leagues. They helped make it that global game, and nobody knew anything about it. So it's very eye-opening when people come here because all of this stuff comes to the forefront now, and you kind of leave scratching your head wondering, how in the world did I not know this? So, yeah, there's always been this symbiotic relationship between the Negro Leagues and those Spanish-speaking athletes who were bonded by the great game of baseball. Why do you think that, that there is more joyful expression of baseball, whether it was in the Negro Leagues or in the, the Latin Leagues, or even now, like you go to the Korean League where they're bat-flipping all <laughs> over the place – it's pretty crazy. Well, why, why do you think, well, how did that develop out of the Negro Leagues, that, that, that there was this kind of joyous way to play the game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there was this level of bravado. Of course it was. And, and, and this celebratory nature of playing the game. And so, you know, the bat flips and all of this stuff that people can't complain about, these unwritten rules in baseball – See, back then, that was almost like a little cold word that the major leaguers had as it related to the Negro League players. Uh, as Buck would say, you know, a guy would go into the whole lawns and he would dive, flip it behind his back, and, and start the double play. And back then, the major leaguers would accuse them of showboating. But as, as Buck would say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. And so, if you don't want me to flip my back, get me out. You know, and, and so, yeah, so they played the game in that manner. You know, it was only in the Negro Leagues that Satchel Paige could be on the mound talking to a guy coming up, as he did with Josh Gibson, you know, or and that kind of bravado that was showed. And so some guys say, well, that's, you know, disrespectful to the game. But says who? You know, who, who made that determination? And, and I think that's why when we see the world games, you see the excitement and energy that the world games bring. To me, it's one of the best things that baseball has ever done was the introduction of those world games. And, and then you get a true flavor for how this game is played. And, and, and that's why I fell in love, like most of us did, with Ichiro Suzuki. Because Ichiro had that Negro League spirit in him. He played the game. 
with that way, with that the, the speed and his ability to hit the ball to all fields, a great arm, a great defense. And here's this kid coming from Japan. When the world is saying, well, you know, you put up those numbers in Japan, but you can't do that in the major leagues. Well, what does he do? He does the same thing in the major leagues. But he, and he did it with this bravado about him, even though it was in a, in a very much Japanese mode, but his gait when he walked and the flair and the bounce that he had on the field. Negro League Baseball, that's why, Buck and, that's why Buck and Ichiro hit it off. They were two kindred spirits. And, and, I, and I think that, that spirit kind of resonates everywhere except for in the major leagues where you have this kind of like this sanctity about the sport and you're not supposed to do this and that and this kind of thing. Well, those unwritten rules were written in Major League Baseball. It really wasn't written anywhere else. <laughs> I, 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 in having Ichiro retire this past week, I, I love that you're telling that story because he's he was one of my favorite players to watch. And you're right. I do think that there's something that even though he didn't speak English publicly, that if you're someone who enjoyed, that grew up hearing the great stories of the Negro Leagues, for example, you gravitated towards Ichiro. Of course. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's why he and Buck connected. Well, number one, I think Buck could un- identify with what he was going through. As I mentioned earlier, despite the success that he had in Japan, there was always this air of skepticism that you can't do that in the major leagues. Why? because we just automatically believe that the best baseball is being played in the U.S. in the major leagues. Well, Buck could relate to that because no matter how good they were in the Negro Leagues, there was that same level of skepticism. You did that in the Negro League, but you can't do that in the major leagues. So what happens? These guys go up and do the same thing in the major leagues once the door was open for them. And I think Buck identified that with each role, and they just became almost kindred spirits uh, during the time that Buck was still alive and Ichiro was playing and making his visits to the museum and Buck out at the cage, sitting around the cage and talking and that whole nine yards. I hope you took something out of that. I am very much looking forward to having other great long conversations about topics in the sports world that I care about on this podcast. And so we're going to do this daily, man. We're going to come up with stuff and we're going to talk to interesting people and Maybe we will profile more players here and there when we have the the right combination of guests to go along with it. Make sure if you're in the Chicagoland area, or honestly, you can listen to us worldwide, you can check out my my show on The Score, where I talk primarily Chicago sports. 670thescore.com, right here on your radio.com app. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Ready to expand your financial game? NerdWallet can coach you on smart strategies like choosing investments, finding your next credit card, and setting a budget that works for you. Score major points towards your summer vacation by learning expert tips for choosing a high-yield savings account and how to build wealth by investing in index funds. Slide into summer with smarter decisions in 2024. Follow NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.